Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, well, thanks for joining us. I'm here today with Allison Rue. She is a certified nutrition specialist and a health educator with a weight-inclusive practice based in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Allison, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, you're on the show sort of for two reasons today, aren't you? Um, (laughs) I mean, I can tell you that. (laughs) Um, You are both someone who lives with invisible illness and a practitioner. So maybe we should start with your invisible illnesses, and if you could sort of give us some background on what you've got going on and how you first realized you had it going on. Sure. I I kind of have two stories when it comes to invisible illness. One actually started when I was a teenager. And uh, when I was about 15, I started having abdominal pain on my lower right side. And the, you know, I had a temperature. So I think I remember leaving school because the nurse thought I might have appendicitis. Mm. And my mom came and picked me up and we went to the emergency room and I had a CAT scan done and they thought they saw inflammation near the appendix. So I ended up getting referred to a gastroenterologist. It wasn't classic appendicitis. It was very confusing. My white blood count, my white count was a little high, but not Mm. super high. The fever was high, but not super high. Very kind of amorphous symptoms. Mm. And, um, I started what ended up being a decade long process of seeing multiple doctors about it and being diagnosed with IBS. At one point, they thought maybe I had Crohn's disease. At one point, they thought, you know, when I was 16, they actually did decide to just take my appendix out. So I had an appendectomy. Wow. Um, and then I saw a doctor who was an MD, but also had a background in Ayurvedic medicine. Hmm. And so that's more like in- integrative medicine for people who who may not be as familiar with Ayurvedic, right? So Ayurvedic medicine is a thousands year old medical uh, modality that comes from India, mm. and um, conventional doctors can go and get further training in Ayurvedic medicine. It it kind of like a lot of traditional medicines, it it involves the concept of balance Mm. um, and the idea of when something is out of balance, trying to gently correct it, Um, which I have all kinds of opinions about as a clinician. (laughs) Um, But as a a patient, especially a young woman who is really struggling with um, a lot of pain, it was a very it was it was a very safe place for me because I felt okay, this person is trained to listen to me and listen mm-hmm. to my pain. So I finally felt heard um, after having multiple really invasive tests. Done. How old were you about this time when you met the Ayurvedic doctor? I was I had just turned twenty one. Okay, so you'd been sick for like six years. Yes. And I had decided to major in biology and I worked in a pharmacology company. Mm. I worked, you know, researching a drug in neuroimmunology. And so I kind of got into science and 
interested in medicine because I was sick and I was curious mm-hmm. about, can I learn about something that I can help myself? Right. I also was studying theater because I loved theater, but <laughs> um, I was majoring. Which is something we will also get into. <laughs> yeah. But I was majoring in biology um, and, uh, and I, I couldn't figure it out. And this doctor kind of just suggested, you know, that there's this really rare condition and it's possible that you meet the criteria for it. And it's called familial Mediterranean fever. That sounds really fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he said it's genetic and um, it's usually in certain ethnic populations. Um, and I do have a somewhat Mediterranean background. Um, and though my name, my last name is not Mediterranean. No one ever asked, you know, about my <laughs> background. Well, but is that, is that the Mediterranean fever, familial Mediterranean fever, I should say, is that something like you have to have some kind of Mediterranean connection? So when this ha- when I was, when it was originally suggested as a diagnosis, that was the belief because mm-hmm. our understanding of genetics was slightly limited. It's helpful to remember that we had just kind of completed the human genome project at this time. So mm-hmm. we very much in especially in the conventional medicine world, genetics were destiny. Mm. And so if you had the genes for something, you were going to get it. Mm. Now we have a slight different interpretation. Yeah. The concept of epigenetics and environmental factors, turning genes on and off like light switches. Yeah. And so, you know, I was a very determined teenager <laughs> and um, took the concept of my future pretty seriously. Mm. And I think maybe perhaps that, you know, being overscheduled, which I completely did to myself. Um, well, I think all of us ladies have been there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very possible that that um, stress on my body could have triggered this. It's very mm. common that people have their first signs of symptoms in around those like mid teens. Mm. Um, but here's the thing that my own bias ended up doing. I listened to this doctor and I thought, okay, this is great, but I wasn't familiar with, uh, integrated medicine or holistic medicine. And I kind of didn't believe him. And I took the medicine. There's a medication that you're supposed to take. I took the medicine for a little while. I felt better. I felt significantly better. I mean, Mm. I went from some days barely able to eat food and having major pain in my abdomen, I would get these fevers and it, wow. it was almost constant um, to really f- with the medica- medication feeling much better. But I had such a significant life transition. I graduated from college. I moved. I was working in a job I really loved. So I thought maybe this has a lot to do with my own responsibility, hmm. which I think that cycle of, oh, this is my responsibility to heal myself is so common with invisible illness. And would you say it's possibly more common among women too? I agree. Yeah. And I think, and as a clinician, while I think it's important for us to help patients acknowledge their responsibility to some end, there's only so much a person can actually do with, with food and lifestyle. And at a certain point, you have to go. Okay, I've met my my, my responsibility. So guys, this is a, a certified nutrition specialist <laughs> telling us that like sometimes food can only do so much. <laughs> yes, it can do a lot, but it yeah. also can only really truly do so much. And um, anyway, so I kind of let this go, and then eventually, when I was in graduate school, I started getting really sick again, mm. and. Uh, 
I was in a program where you just could not miss class. And, um, I ended up finding a, um, a new primary care doctor and we were trying different things. And this is super embarrassing, but I was up, it was probably three o'clock in the morning. I was doing homework. Mm. Um, I don't work at three o'clock in the morning anymore, but at the time (laughs) I was working at 3am and I just had background TV on and it was an episode of house. (laughs) That's ironic. (laughs) And, um, the episode featured a character who had familial Mediterranean fever. Stop. And (laughs) I was, and I was really sick again and I was really struggling and I didn't. And the symptoms like, so it's, it's abdominal pain. You can have, you essentially have, um, what's called peritonitis, which uh, you can get inflammation of the lining around your organs. Mm, Okay. Um, This is extremely rare. So it's the kind of thing that, um, which is why it it was so hard to get it properly diagnosed. And probably why it was also featured on House MD. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And you usually get a fever. um, Mm -hmm. And uh, with the fever, you can feel very flu-like, like like aches and pains. Um, Joint pain is one specific thing. And some people can get pleuritis, which is inflammation of the lining, um, essentially in the thoracic cavity, in your lungs. Wow. Um, And... The reason it needs to be treated is that over time, it can potentially lead to kidney issues that are pretty severe. And um, just kidney, even though it's it's affecting other organs? It can lead to arthritis in, in large joints. Okay. Um, these super rare genetic diseases don't have a ton of research behind them, though I now am very lucky that we have um, a center that researches the condition here in Los Angeles oh, at UCLA. Um, did that, did you move to LA before you knew that? <laughs> I had no idea. Um, no. but I, uh, I saw it on house and mm. I, and I thought, okay, I, I should listen to this. Cause again, even though that episode very much dramatized the condition in of a course. way, um, there were a lot of things that just spoke to me. So I did mention to my primary care doctor, you know, I have been diagnosed with this in the past. I didn't really believe it. Is there any way we can see if this is what is wrong with me? And, and he basically said, let's trial the medication. Oh, that's um, great. And, and I felt so much better. I, at that time for the first time started learning about how you can use food to potentially make you feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So I tried some dietary changes. I, started taking really much better care of myself mm. and it was like coming up from being from underwater after yeah. a decade plus. Now did your doctor ever um call for specific tests to determine whether or not you had this illness? At that time, no, it's an it's a condition that gets diagnosed sometimes through genetic testing. Okay. Um but it also sometimes is diagnosed based on a collection of symptoms hmm. and the symptoms are so specific and, and episodic in nature that I met the criteria at that time. Sometimes okay. people even have a rash and I had the rash and all these different specific oh, wow. things. But um, the bottom line was that your primary care doctor believed you. Yeah. Um, which was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, at that point I had had other doctors put me on, Antacid medication. Mm-hmm. I had a doctor suggest an um, antidepressant medication. That um, always happens at some stage, I think, with invisible illness, doesn't it? I it continues to happen. Yeah. Um. It, and 
even when you haven't been actually, and because now I work in behavioral nutrition, I know there are are appropriate screening tools that you Mm. can use as a clinician to assess whether or not someone may qualify to have a mood disorder. Right. And it's so funny to me to think about the many times I've been in a situation where I say I'm in pain and there's no proper screening tool used about whether or not I have a mood disorder and then they just offer an SSRI. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, it, it's definitely happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went on this medicine, um, and it really helped. However, even when medication helps, there's always a side effect. Mm. And the medication side effect of that medicine plus the antacid I was on is it impairs a certain nutrient absorption, impairs wow. B12 absorption. And nobody monitored that for years. Wow. And then fast forward a few years <laughs> later, um, I started having really severe back pain and I had a lot of numbness in my legs and tingling. And uh, I was still taking the medication as prescribed. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I hadn't had an attack in a really long time. So I felt like it was working. I might as well keep taking it. And I was in so much pain with my back. Eventually, I couldn't sit down anymore. Wow. And so I went to an orthopedic. They referred me to a spine specialist after seeing the MRI. And I was working with a spine surgeon. And the spine surgeon said, uh, probably would be a good idea for you to be seen by a neurologist. Neurologist, first person to run a B12 level. Wow. It was extremely low. Um, and it probably was, it still is slightly confusing, but it was probably the underlying cause of significant nerve damage that I have in my legs. So how is that B12 specifically related to your nervous system? So B12, um, I'll put my, my other hat on. Yes. (laughs) Put on your, your medicinal cap now. (laughs) Uh, B12, um, and other B B vitamins, Mm. um, have a lot to do with their, they essentially work as cofactors, which means that they help enzymes do their job Mm -hmm. and they help a lot of things do their job that have to do with nervous system function. Um, a classic example is when someone suffers from, I always mess up this word, when he coughs, which there's, there's shaking, Mm -hmm. um, that, is often a scene in like alcohol use disorder. Sure. Um, that is related to usually a, a B vitamin deficiency, a very specific one. Um, okay. and so the B vitamins in general have a lot to do with nervous system health. Wow. Uh, B12 deficiencies are common with certain medications. Mm. And for some reason with my system, these medications that I were on, I was on was really depleting them and it ended up causing neuropathy. So I have peripheral neuropathy in my legs. Wow. Um, possibly related to these medications. So, um, that was a really interesting experience because the thing that was helping me was also possibly causing a problem. Yeah. And then with, um, my back, I ended up having degenerative disc disease and I ended up having, and that was the underlying cause of that is still a big question mark. Right. Whether it was related to this medication or not. I I don't think that would be ever related to the medication. Actually. I think it, um, I used to be extremely active. I may have injured myself 
you know, dancing or something like that. Something minor that you may not have noticed. Yeah. And then when you get a desk job and you're sitting and you lose core strength, Mm -hmm. then a a disc injury can become more apparent. Wow. Um, Also, there are some people who are born with just what's called a narrow spinal canal Mm -hmm. and you can have stenosis where um, if you have a disc uh, that uh, becomes damaged, then it has more potential for harm. Right. Which just might be the case with my anatomy. I can't, mm. I can't, you know, elimination diet myself out of having a narrow spinal canal. <laughs> right. But is that something that may have been genetic as well? Um, possible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, but like on a certain level, it doesn't matter because the point is that you have it and you're living with it. So like next step is to figure out how to get better. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Instead exactly. of like, where did it come from? Cause we know you have it. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I ended up having to go on disability from work because I couldn't sit down. Mm. I couldn't stand still. And, I had a lot of epidurals and then eventually ended up having a surgery in my low back. Um, and now I am starting to have the same problem in my neck. Oh, wow. And it's impacting um, my arms and my hands. And it's something that now that this is the second round of dealing with this, um, I actually feel much more at peace with it. Mm. I think the first time it was so life altering, I ended up changing my career because I couldn't work at my old job anymore. Um, And I ended up going back to school because of it so that I could create a life where I could work and make income and um, be able to take care of my body. Right. Um, So I'm not going to have to reinvent my life this round, which is great, but it's, it's definitely something that I continue to face every day and mm-hmm. having chronic pain is tricky. Yeah. Um, so I, so I guess that's why I said there's kind of two invisible illnesses. I have this, this auto inflammatory condition, this familial Mediterranean fever, um, which at this point, I think probably 12 doctors have officially diagnosed me with. Oh, wow. And I still, <laughs> you still don't want to believe it. <laughs> I still don't want to believe it. <laughs> Um, um, cause it just is so invisible, right? Cause it's sort of like, there's no reason that I'm having these symptoms and, and I'm having, like, you're having all the symptoms, but being able to sort of go like, that's the name for it and sort of get your head around it. Is that what you mean? Like you still don't want to believe it in that way. Yeah. And I think as you've probably experienced when you, for years, people just said, oh, there's nothing Right. Really that wrong with you, you start believing that narrative. And, or if people convince you that, you know, just, just have the mental fortitude to get past the fact that you have a fever and abdominal pain. (laughs) Um, I know my period feels different than this. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, you know, it's, I think changing that narrative and accepting, but also still taking an, a reasonable amount of responsibility for your health mm. and not becoming hypervigilant is so key. Well, it- and that's what a key thing as you're saying that like, you know, taking responsibility for your health, not necessarily taking responsibility for the symptoms you're having mm-hmm. and blaming yourself for having something going on, but actually taking responsibility for finding a way to heal. Yes. And sometimes that responsibility to find a way to heal actually means finding, okay, these foods do make me feel better. These foods might not make me feel as well. Mm. And learning how to have a healthy relationship 
with food in that regard, I definitely tried all the things mm-hmm. um, to heal myself. And um, sometimes it was very functional and normal. And sometimes some of these therapeutic diets that I would try would put me in a headspace where I would be at the grocery store and staring at a wall of yogurt and mm. feel totally overwhelmed and think, I just want to eat some yogurt and I don't know if I can buy this yogurt or this yogurt. Right. Um, and so when that healing choice that we've made is promoting hypervigilance, we have to take a step back and mm. make sure, you know, is this p- potential restriction or choice that I've made to support my health worth it or not? Mm. I can also say, you know, I do have acid reflux. I've had acid reflux for a long time. Mm. Um, and I'm going to have it probably for the rest of my life. It, at this point, it's well managed with all the, the tools that I've learned in my nutrition training, but I have to honor my health and really limit, you know, my raw red onion right. consumption, for example. Mm. Um, and onions are a very healthy food. They mm. actually help feed gut bacteria. You know, there's mm. all these things that they do that are very healthful. Right. Um, but they're just not good for your, for my personal blood. body. They make me feel uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. So. And that's bottom line, isn't it? And it's being able to listen to your body as well. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, so you mentioned that you were in one career and changed to another. So you were pursuing a career in the theater? Well, I was I was a director right. in theater and I went and got my MFA in directing mm-hmm. and um, I actually fell in love with filmmaking when that was happening. And I realized that I wanted to explore working in the TV and film industry. And so very fortunate to come to Los Angeles after Mm. my first time I went to graduate school. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I had, I worked at a film studio. Right. Um, and the hours were very long, uh, the behaviors in terms of how a lot of people took care of themselves was, I, I think at this point in time, I can look back and make the clinical observation. It was quite disordered. Yeah. Um, I just remember the bags of meal delivery outside of executives' offices. Yeah. And um, it's just survival, isn't it? It's not thriving, it's surviving. Absolutely. And it, even on the executive side of things, there's so much shame around body image and image in general. At this particular studio, I recall going into the bathroom and people spending so much time in the bathroom. Like like a whole break in the bathroom kind of thing? Yeah, but having to go to the bathroom. Like people oh, so not just like sitting, actually sitting there on their phones or no, something? No, in the stalls. So people were sick. I think you can say we we talk about poop on the show. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I love talking about poop. It's pretty much what I do all day long because <laughs> it's such a great barometer yeah. for you to determine how how am I doing in terms of am I making am I helping my body feel good mm-hmm. and everybody's optimal bathroom situation is unique and different yeah. and so you, being more comfortable with knowing what yours is and making peace with that is important but and i i'll just insert an anecdote here which is that i probably was not okay with talking about my poop until i worked with you oh <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Because it is, it's like a really good indication of what's going on. It really is. If you have violent diarrhea, something's off. And if you have a really hard time having a bowel, like producing a bowel movement, Mm -hmm. that is a sign there's some opportunity to explore, you know, what's going on. And so often it can be as simple as, are you drinking enough water? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times it's a signifier of how you're managing your stress. Mm. Which is just, I think that's normal in the industry. And then when my, when I had all the back problems, I realized that I wanted to go back to the drawing board and really think about what excited me about working as a director and, uh, in the first place. And I realized that I just, I really fundamentally loved stories and I love listening and hearing people's stories and, I really loved helping people be good at their jobs and, mm. um, and food and science. So I felt like, okay, the, the, the natural progression. Yeah. It seemed to be to combine all the training that I had and, and to get quality training and nutrition. Yeah. So that was your second graduate degree. <laughs> that is correct. And that's been the trajectory that you've stayed on. And now you're working in private practice, but also sort of on a consulting basis as well with other um, companies as well, right? Yes. And I teach at AMDA College. Wow. Um, I teach health education. and Now that's interesting. So they're offering health education at uh, a, a cons- drama school. Exactly. And, you know, I think if when I have the, the time and if I ever have the money, I think I would love to really promote the importance of health education in performing arts yeah. Conservatory programs, because as you probably have also experienced, I saw a lot of negative health behaviors. I yep. developed some mm-hmm. real bad habits and all of that is preventable. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying people need to be eating in any kind of way that promotes perfectionism, but it's pure and simple emphasizing self-compassion mm-hmm. with health behavior, not treating one's body like crap. Um, when Which it, we really do. I mean, having been through drama school myself, I can attest to the fact that like I wasn't eating well when I was there. I was working too hard. I mean, you have the college experience where you're you're overloading, um, but you are just surviving, and um, it's very hard to stay on top of like making a salad instead of just grabbing that that sandwich or whatever is going to be something that's good for your body. Um, and then trying to combine it with exercise. And in the meantime, you've got particularly women, but certainly women and men in these programs who are so worried about what their bodies look like, Mm -hmm. um, and reflecting negatively on themselves that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to be able to provide that kind of, um, counseling to, to people in those situations. Absolutely. And I think if you have faculty encouraging weight loss, which which is a problem, <laughs> all of them, uh, I mean, they I, all do. I don't yeah. know of a program where that probably doesn't happen. You have an ethical responsibility mm. to provide support, mm. which is great that AMDA is doing that. So kudos to them. For- yeah, it's fantastic. And, and I think it also, when you learn about one's body and health Part of it is also learning about how to be a critical thinker mm. when it comes to where your health information is coming from. Sure. Are you getting your health information from your friend that did a cleanse from this w- company that, you know, yeah. who knows? It, it's it, really like, is it fake news? Exactly. There's so much fake news in the wellness world. Mm. And it's, and we know that it pr- can pr- be so 
harm inducing. Mm. And so one thing that I've tried to do with the students is help them learn how to be more discerning. Yeah. Um, and also just pure and simple, teach people how to get health insurance and how health insurance works. Um, I think that is also really helpful. How to find a doctor. Yeah. I Um, wish we were taught those things in college in general, because it's interesting. Like, you know, we always look back at, at the training that we had in school and in college and any math class you took was more about making a graph than being able to balance your bank account or your checkbook, you know? Yeah. And it's like those practical skills may have been more useful because some people don't get those skills at home necessarily, you know? So being able to provide those resources to people is huge. It comes back actually to the very core concept also of consent. Mm-hmm. And we think about consent in terms of sexual consent, but for an artist in training, especially a performer in training, the the boundaries of consent get extremely blurry. Yeah. You're actually trained to, to not have boundaries. Not have boundaries. And so when that happens day in, day out, and you're working on being as vulnerable as possible and you're praised for your vulnerability, mm. there I believe is an ethical responsibility to make sure that one's mental health is being taken care of mm. and one's physical body is being taken care of. I can remember um, being in a movement class where we did a movement exercise and it was, I am, I am fairly like emotionally an even killed person mm. and the physical work that we were doing felt so invasive to me that I had to leave the room. And um, that was something that I think it probably was something that was stored in my body. And they're actually, and this is really interesting and possibly interesting for people to know about, there are licensed mental health practitioners, Mm. MFTs or psychologists that actually use gesture and movement type somatic therapies Mm. around trauma. Well, EMDR and tapping are great examples. EMDR and tapping. Um, There is also somatic uh, psychotherapy. Mm. And those forms of therapy in the right hands can provide immense relief and Mm. freedom from trauma. And I don't think that movement instructors realize Again, the potential for triggering, right? That some of these exercises can do. I certainly have witnessed that. I witnessed that with other, you know, colleagues when I was in certain mm-hmm. movement classes, certain things feeling really triggering. Yeah. So, um, whether or not you have degenerative disc disease or like some actual kind of like physical problem going on, but that you're yeah. storing memories or psychological pain. Exactly. Physically. Yeah. Yeah. Just it comes back to the invisible illness question because we have no idea what somebody's experienced Mm. and And sometimes they don't either and they don't either and when you have people leading movement exercises that maybe haven't had multiple years of psychological training yeah (laughs) well they tend not to be go hand in hand do they you know one thing is psychology and the other thing is movement and they're very separate yeah but but they are so intertwined they're so intertwined and certain theories of movement when you go into a performing arts training i'm thinking specifically of what i went through with lobin um that's that's hugely tied into psychological gesture and that's Mm -hmm. a huge part of acting training for a lot of people so to have the training in both the psychology and the movement, if you're teaching psychological gesture, 
makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all part of the compassion um, that we're talking about generally here that like, you know, people being able to sort of create a bubble of compassion around themselves and be able to give themselves compassion, which is not only part of being invisibly ill, but it's part of being human. And it's something that particularly in this world where we're moving really, really fast all the time, we kind of forget, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. And we have to have boundaries when it comes to our health. Mm. And when we're working with other clinicians who might say things or do things that aren't helpful, Mm. um, I can now transition to talking about one of the most important things I think um, is the act of being weighed in a medical office. Um, And this is a huge one and very triggering for a lot of people. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there is a lot of literature talking about and demonstrating the harmful effects of weight-informed medical practice. Mm. Um, And when weight-neutral or weight-inclusive practices are explored, you see people having more access to care and feeling more heard and actually getting the care they need. Mm. Um, you know, I feel I do have a privilege that my body is a, a size that is not large. Mm. And I acknowledge that privilege that I have. And I, I think a lot about that I have been heard by medical professionals. Mm possibly because of that. Yeah. And I day in, day out with my own clients, see people who have not been heard. Yeah. And it makes me really angry and also makes me want to change how this works. Um, And I've also had moments where, you know, a, a physician has said something to me about my body size that really was completely uncalled for mm. um because well, as uncalled for as prescribing an ssri when someone's experiencing a physical symptom isn't it absolutely instead of just screening for depression mm-hmm. or anxiety which would be the appropriate thing to do absolutely. um i so because of my neuropathy i have a lot of feet foot issues mm-hmm. um and i was having a problem with um a big my big toe mm-hmm. and i saw a podiatrist and um the podiatrist made me get an MRI. Um, it was really just a nail problem. I don't know why I had to get an MRI. Hmm. Um, and looking at the MRI then said, you have all these, you have, I think he gave me four diagnoses for my foot. Um, I'm like, it's just my nail. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is just a nail issue. Yeah. And And you're in touch enough with your body to be able to also isolate that sensation, aren't you? You know? Yes. And no, it's tricky. I'm in Mm -hmm. touch. I definitely listen as much as I can to my body, but I have neuropathy. So sometimes sensation wise, I get a lot of question marks with my feet. Um, so, um, but I do have limited mobility because of my back. I can't go for a run. I can't go for a jog. I can't go to a yoga class. Mm -hmm. Um, there's only specific exercises that are very safe for me to do. And it's, taken a lot of work to figure out what is safe, what feels safe. You can't go to Pilates anymore. And he, and he said, no yoga, no dance. Um, you can do pool exercises. And he's like, and, um, you should take vitamin B 
which is not a thing for the record. There is no vitamin B. There's multiple. It's all different kinds. B vitamins. Um, and, he sounds and, great. And he said, and you really should think about losing 10 to 15 pounds to take pressure off your feet. Wow. This doctor had never seen me stand up. This doctor had never seen me without a winter coat on. This doctor had never weighed me. Wow. And I acknowledged. And was male. And was male. Whether or not that was part of it. Yeah. Wow. And I acknowledge that I have the privilege to have a brain and a mm. heart and spirit that can hear that and get angry about it mm. and not have it completely derail Yeah, my food and my behavior. So that's a really important thing to sort of pause and, and highlight here, because I think a lot of people would find themselves in that situation and go, oh, well, what the doctor says is what is you know, doctor is God, you know, yeah. and that's not necessarily always the case. And you were smart enough to realize that this was not the doctor for you, I'm guessing. Um, but sometimes you need to go and see someone else. Sometimes you need a second opinion because just because one person says something doesn't mean that's the end all be all. Completely agree. And at any point during your care, if you feel uncomfortable mm. or if you feel like someone's not truly listening to you, you have the option of saying that to that provider. Mm. As a provider, I hope people tell me that if I ever do something that is unhelpful or makes them feel shame or mm. makes them feel um, not heard. Right. And uh, I tried to express that to this doctor. It didn't work. Mm. The um, medical assistant apologized after the doctor left the room. Wow. Um. And, and the medical assistant, male or female? Female, of course. <laughs> this, I mean, I, I'm asking these questions because to me, it all follows. Yeah. And um, I, so that happened to me. And then um, I, you know, I kept hearing stories like this from my own clients. Mm. And I realized that it was time for me to take up the responsibility of getting more vocal about the health at every size approach, mm. weight inclusive practice. And if there's a way that we can someday hopefully develop not just physician education, but dietitian and nutrition and acupuncturist and chiropractor education that helps them understand when you say something like that to somebody can be very damaging, can be very damaging. Mm. Um, and, and it also shows your bias. Absolutely. And any time there is a bias that a clinician is not exploring or acknowledging. There is the potential for harm. Mm. There is the potential for something to be missed. Mm. Yeah. And you're not looking at the whole person when you're making judgments like that. Absolutely. And it's also an opportunity for the patient to understand what their boundaries are. Yes. So that if someone oversteps a boundary for them, that they're able to say, no, thank you. Um, so, I mean, you're talking about being an advocate for others. Mm -hmm. Did you ever find in your experience living with invisible illness that you had to seek an advocate or were there friends or family who came to your aid, who, whose relationships to you sort of changed or were enhanced or, um, anything like that because of being ill? When I was younger, mm. certainly my parents, I was lucky to have parents that were an advocate for me. Right. And, um, I'm very grateful for that. Mm. As an adult, 
I sometimes go into certain appointments and I will intentionally request that my partner come with me. Yep. And um, that's not unusual. Yeah. I think I think that's important for listeners to know. It's not unusual to ask for someone to come with you. And I've had my mother who grew up in the 60s and 70s tell me that back then a woman wouldn't have been allowed to bring a partner or a parent into an appointment. But now you can. She comes with me to all my appointments too. So it's interesting. You are allowed to bring someone with you is the point. Yeah. And they, and there is an energy shift, I think, mm. in the room when you bring somebody with you. Yeah. And, you know, I encourage, and I say this to my students too, and I say this to my clients, bring a notepad. Mm-hmm. I often say, I'm writing that down. Don't, <laughs> don't rely on your phone. Yeah. They think you're doing something else on your phone. Bring a notepad, have a pen, pencil, mm. go in with your questions. Yeah. And every time the question gets answered, write down the answer or cross the question off mm. so that you know you've addressed it. Yeah. It gives you a, a visceral touchstone in the appointment, especially if there's a, a kind of heightened emotion around what's going on. Sure. To make sure that you have an agenda that is uh, reasonable and grounded. Mm. And that way, if you get information, you can write down what the person is saying. And I think part of that, I mean, you say having an agenda that's reasonable and grounded, it's also giving yourself enough credit and compassion to Mm -hmm. know that your agenda probably is reasonable and grounded if you're having a problem and you're trying to seek help. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And do you ever come across patients? I mean, we're talking about listening to patients and being listened to. What is the occurrence of hypochondria in your practice? Does that ever come up when you're dealing with patients? And how do you sort of balance that in the work that you do? Oh man, that is such a good question. It's a big one. I know (laughs) it's really hard to answer. Mm. Because hypochondria, if it starts in the mind, then that's the symptom, right? That it's something in the mind, but you know, and I don't know if it always, I think sometimes it's very much in the mind, but it's so often in the body. Mm -hmm. I've been, uh, because I do work a lot with gastrointestinal disorders and eating disorders, there's a lot of literature on the vagus nerve mm-hmm. and the and which is one of the cranial nerves and depending on how the vagus nerve is being stimulated it can really impact someone's mood someone's motility mm. um with the, how you know their bowel movements are their frequency of bowel movements and um and certain activities certain things can trigger that vagus nerve to make one possibly feel more anxious mm. um and I hate the word psychosomatic. Yeah. Because I do believe that there is probably a physical underlying explanation. Well, and because the mind body connection exists. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So um, I think in all my work, in because I've worked in a medical practice and I've worked in private practice, and in all of my work, I have probably only encountered one person. Mm-hmm. Where I think that they were full on making up what they were saying, and this is, and you're speaking from years of experience here, yeah. So that's really notable. So the the likelihood if you have a doctor, and this is for our listeners to take in, right? If you have a doctor telling you it's all in your head, but you really feel like there's something going on, go get another opinion. Absolutely, get another yeah. opinion. At the same time. 
trying to listen to what each doc to, to what mm-hmm. each doctor says. And if it's the same thing over and over, maybe that's a pattern too. Yeah. And and I think someone saying it's all in your head is the worst thing you can say to. Oh, it's a horrible thing. Someone yeah. because there's it, it actually might be all in your gut brain, mm-hmm. which can promote anxiety and and it can promote bloating and physical feelings and pain Mm. um, and tension and cognitive difficulty. Um, There are so many things that have an underlying root cause that is not going to be found on a test. Right. Such Um, as familial Mediterranean fever. Just familial Mediterranean (laughs) fever. Um, Which I never finished that story, but I I did actually, (laughs) I I started having, I went off the medicine, which Mm. you're not supposed to do. And um, I did end up having two pretty severe attacks. One wound me up in the hospital. I had to oh, go to the wow. emergency room. Um, but fortunately, I went to a hospital in Glendale mm. where there is a large Armenian population. And that is one of the populations that has a high frequency of Mediterranean fever. And they knew exactly what it was. Oh, that's really lucky. And the reason I wanted to bring that up was because for the first time in all my life of having ER visits because of this weird, crazy thing mm. – they were like, we know what that is. Here are, dr- here are drugs. <laughs> oh my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> that's so easy. Yeah. I feel like you had it really good. <laughs> well, I mean, it took... It took a few years. Yeah. 10 plus years yeah. to finally get it really, truly properly diagnosed. And um, it's it's still the everyday struggle of like, can I schedule... Can I say I'm going to that friend's party? Because I yeah. don't know how I'm going to feel. Can I actually make sure I can schedule clients during this time because I don't know how that day is going to go. But you're managing to hold down a very full-time career and you've made your work work around you. To the best of my ability. Yeah. I wish I always wish I could do more. But that's also the wanting to help people factor, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that's where you're an advocate, you know, and, and people are lucky if they are able to work with you, you know, to, to have someone who is sort of looking at a, a broad picture of who they are and listening to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is there a particular, I mean, we're talking about lots of different kinds of invisible illness, right? And you're mm-hmm. dealing with eating disorders, which in my mind also is in that spectrum. Um, it, I know that you are working more specifically in the world of nutrition, mm-hmm. but is there a particular illness that you find comes across your desk more often than others? I get, um, I think there is a lot of poorly managed irritable bowel syndrome. Mm, Okay. And especially when there is irritable bowel syndrome plus a history of possibly disordered eating or an eating disorder, that is a very kind of red flag territory Mm. because we have evidence-based dietary approaches Mm. to work with irritable bowel syndrome. But if you have a history of a difficult relationship with food, you have to be very cautious about how you include a therapeutic diet. Mm. And so if you start experimenting with that diet, it's really important that if you have IBS and a history of even disordered eating, kind of borderline eating disorder, and especially if you have an eating disorder history, you it's really important if you want to work on treating your IBS, you work with a dietitian or a certified nutrition specialist who has training 
in eating behavior Mm. and that it's a supervised process. There's a lot right now of self-treating. Yeah. People read about a diet online. We were talking about this right before we started recording, right? That, you know, people look at something like AIP, for example, Mm -hmm. um, the autoimmune protocol. And a lot of people who are behind AIP movements are purely paleo and maybe don't have training in nutrition or science for that matter. So um, what, how do you help people who are sort of looking at that and going, you know, they might have a disordered way of eating, but they need to find something that works for them. Is it elimination diet territory? And is that something they should be working with a professional? I really fundamentally believe that if you're going to be exploring an elimination diet where you're eliminating entire food groups, it is wise to do it with a, with a professional Mm. and really important to make sure that you're mental health and relationship to food is being monitored during that time and that it is absolutely medical ne- like medically necessary. Yeah. Um we have literature showing that restriction promotes disordered behavior around food. There is a study and I'm going to try to do it justice in describing it um where they took two groups of children and um with, and they, with one group, they, they put food, food in front of them. The food were very specific colors and they said, eat as much as you want. Mm. And the other group, they said, okay, you can eat as much as you want, but you cannot eat red food. No red food for you. Mm. The two groups ended up eating about the same amount of food. Kids are really good intuitive eaters for mm. the most part. Then they sat them down again with the same food and said, Okay, now you can eat as much as you want. And if you want to eat red food, go ahead, eat the red food. And those kids that had been told to not eat the red food before ended up eating more like of the only red, red food. food. So they had statistically significant increase in the color. This is just restricting color. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine when it's sugar or something that we have an actual addiction to. Well, and I mean, I could talk about deconstructing the concept of food addiction, <laughs> but <laughs> that might be time for uh, that might be for another time. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, restriction is a very powerful mm. thing, and it can potentially be harmful. And so, any time that someone finds this food doesn't agree with me, I always encourage them to think: Are you making that choice from a place of because I'm worried about? my body size Mm. or because of how it makes you feel. And in your calendar, in three months, put a note to try the food again. Mm. Unless there's a full-on allergy, which is different. Right. And Um, you can also do testing for allergies. Exactly. Sensitivities and things like that. You can absolutely get Mm. full-on allergy testing from an allergist. So um, it's really important that the we know the self-compassionate choice is to always advocate for a diverse diet as possible. Mm. And that's going to look different for different people at different points in your life. Right. When I was in college and I was getting diagnosed with IBS and all these different things when it was the familiar Mediterranean fever, I remember seeing a dietitian and they told me to stop eating dairy. So I spent all of college eating the crusts of pizza. Oh my God. Which is probably just as bad. (laughs) I mean, it didn't really help my symptoms at all. And I remember she had recommended I eat soy yogurt, which... um, And you're dealing with lots of soy. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really hard to digest for some people. Mm. It was for me. And it it was also just really gross. Gross. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, 
I really tried to restrict dairy for a really long time. And I recently just tried to reincorporate it and it makes me feel great. Oh, that's amazing. And there's certainly a threshold that is too much for me. Mm. But again, I just want to go back to acknowledging that I have the privilege that my mind around food is for the most part not disordered. And mm. we, the literature shows that is definitely not always the case with a lot of people. Mm. And so we have to be able to determine if I try this intervention with food, is it going to make me hypervigilant? Mm. Is it going to make me not be able to be social with my friends? Do I need social time as somebody with an invisible illness more so than making sure I'm restricting this food that yeah. may or may not actually help me feel better? So much of this restriction messaging that's coming through, um, you know, integrative, functional, holistic, quote unquote, holistic practitioners, um, I will just make the observation that it is often a male, a white male voice. Oh, how surprising. <laughs> and, um, it is often a white male voice that also encourages potentially overexercising and weight loss in and weight loss. And, uh, that is a lens through which, through which I just don't think is safe mm. and, um, inclusive. How do you think you develop such an inclusive lens? Do you think it's like you somehow escaped disordered thinking in that way? Is it because of your training and being able to sort of see the science behind everything? I think we all have our disordered thinking about something. That's very true. Yeah. And I think I've taken the time to figure out where mine lies and I've done a lot yeah. of work on that. And, um, in, Way back when I was first starting, I was actually just talking about this with an, with a dietitian this morning. I recall working with someone and I did as I was trained. I put them on an elimination diet, um, because they were experiencing fatigue and IBS and all these things. And, um, they didn't lose weight. And, I was like, you know what? You're, f but they felt so much better. Mm. They were able to, they got through their workday better. You know, they, ha they had more energy. They were sleeping better. They were going to the bathroom very comfortably, mm. all those things. And they requested that I weigh them mm. to decide whether or not they were successful in our <laughs> work together. And I, I tried to resist. Yeah. And this is when I was like baby nutritionist. Mm. And, um, I just totally capitulated and weighed them and they didn't, they lost like two pounds and that was not. And they felt like a failure. They felt like a failure. And that moment, I, everything I was already kind of intuiting, I realized, okay, if somebody's already struggling with an invisible illness, mm. why would I ever do this to them? Why would I ever profit from their shame? Yeah. Um, and I never, ever let that happen again. Yeah. Amazing. I'm, it's interesting. I'm thinking I've got a scale in my bathroom, but I never use it. I've got like a hamper sitting on top of it. <laughs> it's like, it's time to just throw it out. Throw it away. <laughs> throw it away. It's probably broken anyway, <laughs> you know? Um, but it is really interesting um, just to reflect on, you know, I, I don't know how many of us have moved and thought, oh, must get a scale. 
to have in the bathroom, you know, like it's just sort of, that's the way we've been taught with like low fat diets and the way the American system and and the, the FDA and the AMA have told us, you yeah. know, um, but actually maybe it's time to buck the trend. And there's so many other ways we can attune to our body's needs. Mm. And, and it's just, it's heartbreaking to see when I get when I start working with somebody new who has been given really harmful advice by another practitioner, um, or doctor or clinician, um, we, we kind of have to undo diet culture. That's huge. Yeah. Cause and it's it, not just a personal thing. It's like everything around you too. So it's yeah. undoing your personal feelings about it, but also the lens through which you are seeing, billboards and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, different advertisements and magazines and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. So, um, I mean, obviously we're talking about the way living in this country <laughs> and the systems within which we live, um, obviously negative, negatively affect people. Um, what are your thoughts about the U S healthcare system? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know I'm opening up a can of worms here. Um, with, with regard to the way in which it works very generally, but more specifically work-life balance. Um, I mean, you've been on disability. So you also, I mean, you and I both understand how that works. You know, how often are people ending up on it because the system's not working for them? Um, and is even something like disability insurance, is that a consequence of our current healthcare crisis? Um, how would you frame your thoughts about what's sort of going on right now in the, the healthcare for all versus, you know, private health insurance and all of the stuff that's floating around here? Well, we are very lucky that we live in the state of California because yes. the way state short-term disability insurance works here is extremely more beneficial for the, the patient than, mm-hmm. um, most other states. So I think you know, I know had I not been working in California when I had to go on disability, I would have really struggled. Mm. Um, without going too much into then the battle that I had with a short-term disability private company, mm. um, that was a very dehumanizing process. I was not quote, you know, quote unquote sick enough to get wow. the benefits in the time frame that they decided. Um, so there's the disability insurance private industry is very different from a state disability public program. Mm. And the one in California is actually compared to other states from what I know, and I'm not an expert in this area. Uh, it's quite generous here. Mm. It's still not perfect. Um, you have to work for a certain amount of time to even qualify for it. Mm. So, you know, especially in LA, we have so many people who don't work don't at work a, enough enough to qualify for it. A lot of freelancers, yeah. Yeah. So that's where it really doesn't help people. Um and then with short-term disability, you have to meet the you have to meet certain category categories that their staff physicians decide would be appropriate to reimburse for. Mm. And I personally experienced that what my physician, my physician thought was not what their physicians thought. Right. 
Um, that also happens in a, terms of a separate conversation with health insurance because for a, a procedure, a test to get approved through your health insurance has to be, you know, medically necessary. Yeah. And I think most of us who struggle with chronic illness realize that that approval is actually not up to our doctor. It's up to a physician that works for a health insurance company potentially. And I've certainly had, and I'm right now in a waiting game, waiting for a certain procedure to get approved. You and me both. Yep. And um, it's, you know, it, it's making me not be able to work as much mm. while I'm waiting for that. So I'm not so able to contribute to our economy. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, potentially that waiting game then could promote other health issues. Mm. So that to me doesn't make very much sense. No. Um, and the amount of money that I personally have to spend on health insurance, just the premium and then my co-pays and my deductible are, it's exorbitant. Yeah. I don't get to go on trips. Yeah. I, you know, it's, um, it's something that you really become so limited in mm. how you're able to spend your money and your time when you have chronic yeah. illness. Yeah. You have to be so deliberate. It it causes you to be deliberate with every minute of your day. Yeah. In a way that is exhausting. And in a way that a lot of people don't always understand, no. particularly not health insurance companies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or employers potentially, which is yeah. also why I primarily work for myself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's, I guess, a tip maybe for people who are struggling with chronic illness who may be listening in, you know, like find, potentially find a way to make your work work for you, mm -hmm. you know, instead of working for your work. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I don't know where this quote came from. I saw it recently in social media and it just, I could not stop laughing. Mm. It's like, do what you love and you will end up having to work all the time. Yes. <laughs> I've seen that one too. Yeah. I was like, yep, that's pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, cause if you're, if you're emotionally involved in your commitment to your work, because you really do care about it, that care doesn't ever switch off. Does exactly. It? Yeah. And I, and I think actually for those in, in the health professions, sometimes you can do more training on, mm. um, what's called compassion fatigue so that you can develop healthier boundaries. I love that there's a name for it. Oh yeah. And you don't have to be working in the healthcare industry to have compassion fatigue. FYI. Exactly. You could be like yeah. me and just be too nice. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about so many things today and I like to sort of end on a lighter note. <laughs> um, and it's sort of like the top three lists and it, you're coming at it from both sides of the spectrum here as a, a patient and as a practitioner. So it's, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this, but, um, what would be your top three tips for someone who suspects they might be dealing with some kind of invisible illness and is looking for help. Find a physician, mm -hmm. whether it's primary care or a specialist or a physical therapist, potentially even find a clinician mm. who listens to you, who every time they send you to someone for a referral, that's a helpful referral. Mm. 
I have a, I have a doctor that I trust. It is not my primary care doctor. And they, every single- Is it your neurologist? Yes. You actually sent me to him at one point. He's amazing. And I was recommending him to someone the other day. He's fantastic. And every single recommendation he's ever made Mm. has been extremely helpful. He's extremely smart. And thorough. And thorough. And when, and he also, when he doesn't know the answer says, I don't know the answer and I need to spend more time on this. Yeah. And he actually talks to my other doctors. Yeah. So even if I go to another doctor that is maybe not, it does not potentially appear as thorough, whether they are not, sometimes you can't, you really can't tell. Um, I, I very much feel like I'm in good hands with that physician. Um, uh, little things like at the office, if you don't want to be weighed and you say, I don't want to be weighed, they should listen to you. Mm. I've said that at a physician's office and the medical assistant said, you have to. <laughs> Says who? It's, it has to be in the chart. And, um, this is something I actually got the advice of from another, um, nutrition professional who's even more senior in terms of their experience. And they said, say, patient politely refuses to be weighed, put it in my chart. Mm. Um, so those are my two big kind of ones around dealing with a clinician's office. Yes. Um, have the boundary around whether or not you want to be weighed because you're already in pain. We don't need to add more trauma. Right. Of making it about your body size. Yeah. And then find a, find a clinician or some kind of some kind of person who can really work with you and and does listen to you. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that you do have a care team that is talking to each other. If there's any way to encourage that. Yeah. And j- the other, you know, small kind of subset advice, just because you got referred to a physical therapist does not mean that that's the right physical therapist for you. Yep. And I'm nodding a lot while Allison's yeah. been talking today. I'm doing I, like some big nods right now. <laughs> like it's really important that you find um physiotherapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, whoever it is you end up working with on that piece, mm-hmm. that person you're gonna see a lot. Yeah. And they need to be really a good fit for you. Mm. I am so grateful that I that I have the one that I have. Like, yeah. She has kept me mobile. She's helped me make discoveries that I never would have been able to figure out on my own or with a different type of physical therapist. So I think that's really important. Those are, I think those are really awesome tips. Um, and then my other top three list, and this is one of my personal favorites. Obviously you've done a lot of dietary changes over the years and, and you focus a lot on nutrition in what you do for work, but, um, and doesn't even need to be nutrition related. Um, cause I know even when you and I have worked together, you've suggested things like meditation to me, you know, what would be your top three? It's sort of an either or here secret indulgence behaviors, um, for someone living with chronic illness or for your particular case or sort of comfort activities. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think sometimes they go hand in hand and it's not, it's just sort of indulgence activities that make you feel good. What are your, your top three? Uh, time in nature, Mm. I think 
is really important in time in nature that is accessible for your body. Well, you've got Griffith Park right here, so that's great. Yes, <laughs> I, and I love it. And I love being there and I'll take my dog. Mm. There are definitely days where my fatigue is is pretty intense and that's not going to be a good fit. Mm. So figuring out how you can get outside in a way that meets your, your mobility needs. Mm. Um, and I encourage also, I think, making that time when you feel like it, social. Mm might be nourishing and sometimes alone. Yeah. Also can be nourishing. So I think time in nature is really important. Um that that is crucial. Mm. Um it's a big reason why I live in Los Angeles mm. and not in Massachusetts anymore. Well isn't that so interesting though? Because people don't think of LA as like a place that has nourishing outdoor activities, but actually it really does. It does. We're so lucky. Yeah. You know, you really technically could go out to Joshua Tree for the day and come back. So yeah. um, if you don't have too much fatigue, I know because <laughs> the drive's a few hours. The drive's like, it's, like an hour, it's like two hours. But have someone drive you. Yeah. Make a friend drive. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so I think that's really, really helpful. Um, and I once did one of those float tanks. Oh my God. What are they like? <laughs> and I will disclose that I'm extremely claustrophobic. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I was totally fine. And it wasn't one of the pod ones. It was like a room one. Okay. And the water is full of Epsom salts. Mm. So you actually kind of, you do float. You really float. And it was very relaxing. You kind of, if you, if you do have a meditation practice, you can meditate while you're in there. Or you can just hang out. Mm. Uh, that was incredible. So that felt really good. Um, and if, you know, finding something like that. That's a sensory deprivation thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, some kind of whether, I think it's really crucial that you prioritize whether it's a, it's body work, um, float tank. Um, I have also incorporated Feldenkrais. What is Feldenkrais? It's like Alexander Technique. Mm. Um, it's an autonomic, uh, nervous system kind of like movement integration mm. technique. Um, so whatever the thing that works for your body, cause it doesn't work for everybody. Mm. I'm sure, I imagine there are going to be people who are like float tank sounds horrible. Right. Whatever the thing is, you got to prioritize it. Yeah. Put in your calendar, mm. be your own assistant, prioritize that time. Um, that is absolutely crucial. Mm. And I don't know if I have a third. Oh, and you have a pet. That's, do you know what's funny? That's come up a few times. I've actually said to to people, because I honestly think, particularly with dogs, like if you're someone who tends toward depression, having an animal that like wakes you up in the morning and is like, best day ever is the best. But also there are so many studies that have proven that just petting a cat or a dog can majorly reduce anxiety mm-hmm. and and promote comfort in general. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, when I did not feel like I had the mobility to have a dog when I was really in the thick of mm. recovering from the first major spine surgery, we had a fish <laughs> and yeah. I just hang out with the fish. So it's, you know, you can find a good fit at varying levels of what is exactly. going to work for your body pet wise. I made sure to get a smaller dog when I did get a dog mm-hmm. so that I can, you know, handle her. Yeah. I probably couldn't handle a larger dog. Um, and I, I think that dog has probably been one of the most healing things mm. in my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you also have a partner, so that probably helps with like taking care of the dog. For me, like I'm single and a cat is 
right on. Yeah, you know? exactly. And some days I can't get up to take a dog for a walk. So having a cat who shows up and taps me on the face, yeah. <laughs> you know, it can be really great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Allison, thank you so much. Um, if anyone wants to be able to find you, they can find you on alisonrue.com and it's A-L-Y-S-O-N-R-O-U-X.com. Um, and thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing about your experience and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for doing this. Yay. <laughs> That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.